Hey, it's Elahe. Just a warning that this episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse. So please take care where and with whom you listen. So Jim, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. Welcome to Washington. And tell us a bit about yourself and your yeah. community. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Um, my Inupiat name is Akbaruk, which means fast runner. And uh, when I was younger, it was definitely, I lived up to my name, but at 76, uh, not so much. This is Jim LaBelle. He came from Anchorage, Alaska to talk to reporter Dana Hedgepath about something he's rarely spoken about in the public, his experience at a boarding school for American Indian children. And it was just the beginning. It's only a part. I should tell you about how I didn't know who I was when I graduated. I didn't know who I was. Take us back a bit to what your home life was like, and then tell us what you remember um, about when you first left for Wrangell Institute, an Alaskan boarding school. It all began one day when my mother uh, took my younger brother and I uh, by her hand and in very tearful ways she informed us one day that um, she was sorry she was going to have to let us go when I was 8 years old and my brother was 6 so we didn't quite understand her her tearfulness and her apology until um, we started our, our trip to the boarding school, which is about seven or 800 miles away. We were met at the airport by um, Bureau of Indian Affairs officials who had their uh, little rosters, and uh, we got our names checked off against this list. And uh, the first thing they did was... Um, they uh, immediately tied us together to other children uh, with rope. For almost a century, the United States government forced or coerced Native American families to send their children to residential boarding schools. Jim is one of thousands of Native Americans who attended these schools. And many, including Jim, survived years of abuse from the adults who ran these institutions. Reporter Dana Hedgepath, who is also Native American from the Halawasaponi tribe of North Carolina, spent months speaking with Indian boarding school survivors. The impact of the schools has largely been overlooked. Dana wanted to document the experiences of survivors, many of whom are getting older and before these memories are lost. So the effects of Indian boarding schools, unfortunately, can still be felt even today. Um, Many folks use the term of intergenerational trauma, and that can take on many different forms, many different meanings. Dana's reporting comes at a moment of reckoning for the Native American community. This summer, Interior Secretary Deb Holland began a year-long tour of the country, holding listening sessions and conversations to expose the legacy of these schools. And some survivors are ready to talk, because staying silent about the abuse has already had dramatic consequences for their tribes. Many have elders uh, in our communities have started to see the second and third generations of 
uh, survivors or their descendants um, not doing very well. And uh, they started putting things together, like perhaps maybe it was the way we went to school and how we were treated and and um, how that's starting to manifest itself in ways uh, that caused a lot of us to go to prison, a lot of us to commit suicide, uh, get into domestic violence. It didn't take very long for for many of us to start coalescing around this idea that maybe one of the primary reasons the, the way we are the way we are is how we went to how we were forced to go to school. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Wednesday, October 11th. Today, we bring you stories from survivors of Indian boarding schools who want to talk about what they endured in order to heal the next generation. Dina, I'm wondering if we can step back and just get into a little bit of the broad strokes of the history of Indian boarding schools. Can you tell me about how they came to be in the first place? For one thing, it's a forgotten history, mainly because it's a dark chapter of U.S. and American Indian history, and that often leads to it not being told in history books. It's not something that uh, folks are exactly proud of. It started back in the early 1800s. That's where some of the ideas for Indian boarding schools date back to, stemming in part from the 1819 Indian Civilization Act. And that act is pretty much what it sounds like, meant to civilize Indians. The idea being if you take them from their Indian culture, you can assimilate them, civilize them, get them to think, act, and live like non-natives, like whites. The idea behind it was that it was meant to ensure that tribes hit a further decline and ultimately make them and their people extinct. And to do that was through assimilating children using education as a tool. The government long felt that it had a quote-unquote Indian problem, and this has been well-documented in government policies by federal officials and confirmed by the Department of Interior. Native Americans had the land and simply put the U.S. government wanted it. And there was a policy among the U.S. government that to get the land, the way to do that was to eradicate the Indians. They tried the war, disease, forcing Indians off their land on reservations. They wanted to control it. And so they figured that one way to control it was to try to assimilate Indians, try to make them fit into white society. If you can't eradicate them, you can't push them off their land, then assimilate them. And the most powerful and arguably harmful way to do that is to go after people's children. So the U.S. government enlisted Christian churches, and they started their own schools run by the federal government, and some received federal support in terms of money. And they started under the policy of assimilate Native children by taking them from their homes, from their tribal communities, forcing them to often go far away from their homes, just residential boarding schools, And one of the most famous phrases that came out of starting boarding schools from General Pratt, 
who started one of the first boarding schools in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and that was Kill the Indian, Save the Man. And of the 400-plus schools that were started across the country, many of them followed that policy. In other words, take the Indian from their home, strip them of their identity, their culture, force them to abandon their native language, force them to learn English, give them Anglo names, give them numbers to be referred to, cut their hair, rid them of their clothing, give them uniforms, and run these military-like institutions, ban them from their tribal practices, beat them if they speak their language, and you can, quote-unquote, force them to assimilate into white culture. Can you give me a sense of the scope of this, about how many schools were there, where were they, and how long did these schools go on? So the scope of it is that for nearly 100 years, from the late 1870s until 1969, the U.S. government or religious groups ran over 500 boarding schools in 37 states in the country. Oklahoma had the most with nearly 80. And one of the questions that is still unanswered is exactly how many kids went there. There's a figure that by the mid-1920s, about 80% of Native children were at boarding schools. So for many years, multiple generations, many Native Americans in this country went through these schools and had experiences like this. Dana, can you explain how this worked? Like, walk me through how a child would end up at a boarding school, and what did the people who you interviewed, what did they tell you about that? I'm so glad you asked that, because as a parent myself of two little girls, so many people say, well, how could parents let this happen? Let's back up for a second and set the stage. You're talking about Native people who at this point in time have had hundreds of years of their land being taken and their culture being taken. You've got the end of the Indian Wars of the 1800s, and to put it mildly, American Indians were at a real low point in many respects. They'd been forced on reservations, their land had been taken, buffalo herds had been gone, just to name a few things. Children were coming out of these situations where sometimes their mother or their father or their elders might have died in their family. They were being taken care of by elder relatives who were sometimes raising multiple children at once. They had a heavy load. Sometimes boarding schools were often sold almost like an advertisement in a way to chiefs. And the chiefs would send their kids thinking, okay, I'll send my child there. Perhaps this could be a good thing for him or her to learn English, to be able to communicate for himself, herself, and on behalf of their tribal people. That was sometimes seen as a sign to other people in the tribe that if the chief, the leader of our people, is sending his child, I hope it must be safe for my child. So in the late 1800s, there were government policies put in place that American Indians had to send their kids to a school, and preferably to a boarding school. But they didn't send their children their rations could be withheld, meaning they would not eat on the reservation, and they could even be jailed. There was a fear among children, among parents, that they would be either forced or coerced to send their children to boarding schools. They really did not have a choice. Some parents also sadly hoped that their kids would learn to speak English. They realized at this point that white colonialism was here. It had arrived. It was here to stay. 
And they really sadly thought that if perhaps my child learns to communicate in this world, in this white man's world, maybe they can make something better for themselves, improve tribal relations. Many of the treaties were not being honored. They were hopeful that things could be made better for the next generation. So, Dana, of the survivors you spoke to, what did they remember about their first moments, you know, of being taken from their families and going to these boarding schools? One of the people that I spoke to was Ramona Klein. She's now 76 years old, and she's from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in Belcourt, North Dakota. And at the age of seven, she was put on a big green bus that pulled up to her reservation. She had to get on it, and she didn't really understand where she was going. She was being sent to Fort Totten Indian Boarding School about 100 miles from her home. As a young child, I thought that, you know, it was forever. What I remember about that scene, about that time, is looking out the window and seeing my mother cry. The image of her is is burned in my memory. It's a feeling of loss. It's a feeling of deep deep loneliness. One of the survivors I spoke with, Jim LaBelle, he's a leader in the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition Board. That's a nonprofit group that's pushing for congressional legislation to look more into the abuse that happened at boarding schools in the U.S. And they're also sort of a networking group for those who have gone to these schools and their descendants. Mr. LaBelle told me about how when he was just eight years old, he and his brother Kermit were taken from their home in Alaska and put on seaplanes and sent to Wrangell Institute. Some of the kids had never been on a plane and they were crying, having accidents on themselves. They were terrified. Sadly, Jim's experience wasn't unique. Many of the people I spoke with shared similar stories of their first days at boarding schools. The first thing we were told to do was to get totally naked. And uh, we had to totally take off every stitch of clothing we had, uh, jackets, socks, shoes, pants, shorts, underwear. Their traditional clothes were taken. Jim LaBelle recalls how his clothes were taken and watching them put in a pile and burned. Dozens and dozens of little children uh, standing naked on a concrete floor, not knowing who each other was. And our only possessions that we had took with us were taken and confiscated. One of the other survivors that I talked to, Donald Nakoni, who was Kiowa from Oklahoma, remembers that one of the first things they did to him was to cut his hair, which is incredibly devastating for natives. Hair is only cut in sign of mourning, typically. And the next thing I knew that they took me out to start cutting my hair. Just, just cut my hair. I saw my long hair. I could just see the long hair on the wet pavement. That, that haircut, that lasting impression of that first day at boarding school was that the smell of kerosene when the matron dipped that fine comb into the, into the can. Their hair was combed with kerosene to get rid of lice. And many of these kids didn't even have lice. They were given numbers. Each one of us had to memorize that, our number because that was the only way they could, many of them communicated with us. Uh, a lot of children had difficult 
uh, indigenous names to pronounce. And so it became easier for the matrons to only call children by a number. And I can so remember years later talking to uh, my fellow um, boarding school survivors who would say, for a while I thought my number was my name. Can you tell us about what life then was like for these children at these schools and describe the treatment that these children endured and and what the survivors told you about that. In many cases, they were beaten. They were starved. Many of the kids suffered from physical, mental, and sexual abuse. Often kids, older kids, would prey on younger kids at the encouragement of teachers, superintendents, or matrons. Oh, wow. What do you mean by that? Can, can you describe what survivors told you? So for Jim LaBelle, one of the things that still stands out in his mind so much at 76 years old was going through the gauntlet. He called it the punishment he feared the most. So there were so many different ways to get punished, both, you know, psychologically and physically punished. And uh, the one that seemed to draw a lot of attention was the uh, gauntlet the gauntlet was where kids were forced to undress. Other kids would, were ordered to line up in two lines. And the child who was being punished would be forced to run up and down the two lines in between as they were hit with either belts or hot towels with safe, open safety pins on them. And it became a spectator sport. A lot of, a lot of people in the uh, campus that worked in different parts of the campus would come in and watch the spectacle of these little naked children running up and down the line uh, while the rest of us were told to use our belts against our own friends and relatives. And they were quite watchful because if they thought we were not being hard on, on using our belts, that we would be forced to go into the line, the gauntlet, ourselves. And that was a good incentive as children to just, you know, wail the hell out of each other. For Jim, he remembers in the first nights and first few weeks where kids would be lying in their bunks and crying out, mama, mama, mama. Toward the end of the school year, none of us cried. Why was that? Because, you know, one by one, uh, we all saw the futility of, you know, our tears are not going to bring our mother home or to see us or to hold us. Um, so our hearts got a little hard. So we didn't, so, you know, what's, what's the use of crying? No one's going to come and hold us or take care of us or tell us we're loved. Or, and we all come from such loving families uh, and to come to this harsh uh, institution uh, it's just totally alien uh, way in which we were treated and that it was all a design uh, to wean us away from our our native culture oh gosh 
Dana, what did the other survivors you spoke with say about similar experiences they endured? So for Donald Nakonin, 86-year-old Kiowa from Oklahoma, the story that I'll never forget about him was at 10 years old, he was sodomized by an older student who was about 17, who they nicknamed the big guy. That, uh, yeah, that's probably the worst one. That's the worst Sexual abuse, time and time and time. And I would come back and put our heads and bury our heads. We couldn't scream. And I never got over that. Donald and the three or four other boys said that this happened to them repeatedly. It happened several times a week over the years that he spent at Riverside Indian Boarding School in Anadarko, Oklahoma. By the way, the school is still open, but it's changed and now champions Indian culture. But back then, Donald told me he got up the courage one night after drinking a bottle of stolen vodka to go tell one of the matrons after it happened. And when they did, she listened to them and said, we'll look into it. But instead, that afternoon, the local sheriff came and took Donald and three of the boys who had been abused to the local jail. And they were forced to spend the night there. And they were so confused as to why they, the victims, had told on this terrible occasions of abuse, but they ended up being put in jail. We didn't do anything wrong. We just, four of us just, I guess we complained. I just don't know how we got there. But then when it took us back, we were, we were in handcuffs. And I remember she told us, don't ever tell anybody was such a chilling image of what impact and what power the adults had over children and the terrifying message that that sent to kids who were being abused or mistreated. I think we need to just take a moment and acknowledge how inhumane this treatment was that these survivors are describing and that children would be treated this way systematically over time. Dina, at what point did these schools finally close? So it happened gradually. There were sort of two big things that happened. In 1928, there was the Miriam Report that comes out, congressional report, and it cites the government for these boarding schools saying several findings. Kids were malnourished, they were mistreated, and they were abused. Those were the big headlines. And overall, it criticizes the schools and the government for how they were run, saying that the conditions were inadequate. And that leads to the closing of a lot of the Indian boarding schools around the 30s. There's another wave of closings that happens in the 70s and 80s after another report done under Kennedy that also looked at what a failure and tragedy these Indian boarding schools had been. So again, following that report, shedding a light, another round of schools close. By the 80s, Most of the schools were closed. You do have some of them that did stay open, but they went through huge cultural transitions. 
where parents, Indian activists, tribes, communities got involved in either taking over the schools from the Bureau of Indian Affairs entirely or being super involved in the curriculum and what was taught and how they were run. Now many of the schools that are still open, uh, they have an entire flipped on their head how they present Native culture. It is celebrated. It is taught. The history of boarding schools is taught, including their own, no matter how dark it is. Many of these schools have really retrofitted themselves entirely from what they used to be. And there's really not that many open. But those were the big things that caused them to close. And, and it was seen as Native children should go to public schools um, and not be taken away from their communities or families. After the break, how survivors are trying to hold the U.S. government accountable. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Has the U.S. government or any of the religious orders that ran these schools, have they ever acknowledged the mistreatment of children at these institutions? So the short answer is no. There's not been an official, formal, or large-scale apology made for the U.S. system of boarding schools. The to-be-sure of that is some religious orders have apologized, and there have been some powerful statements made from elected officials in this country about how Natives were treated, but not that large-scale and official policy that many survivors want to see. The current secretary for the Interior Department, Deb Holland, she's on a year-long Road to Healing tour. And what that means is she's going to various tribal communities, and she's listening to survivors, and she's listening to their descendants. She's really concentrated on hearing their stories, acknowledging their stories, and the horrors and experiences that children who went to these schools went through. There's also a push for more investigations into boarding schools and for that official and formal apology from the U.S. government. And from your discussions with these survivors, what do they want to see happen? What do they have to say about the efforts from Deb Holland, who is also Native American? Um, what do they want to see happen, and, and what actions and resources do they want to see made available? So many Natives in Indian country are thrilled that Deb Holland as the first Native American to serve as interior sectors in that role, and they're also very grateful that she's taking the time, the effort. This is one of her top priorities to travel through Indian country and hear these stories. That's an important first step to have buy-in. And she is Native. So that is that is huge. She should be committed for that. And people are grateful for that. 
The next step is varied. Some natives who've gone to boarding schools want to see reparations similar to those given to, say, Japanese Americans during World War II. Others want simply an acknowledgement that this happened. They want the truth to be told. These are people who are in their 70s and 80s who've never told their stories publicly and in some cases to their families or to their spouses. So they want an acknowledgement. So this is a huge moment in time right now where people are listening, the stories are being heard. And we should note that the finding of 200 unmarked graves in Canada at their residential schools is what sparked this push that we're now seeing here in the U.S. unfold. Canada had a similar system of native boarding schools around this same time frame. There were over 100 schools there. We are years behind what Canada has done. They passed the Truth and Reconciliation. They threw millions of dollars at digging deeper into finding unmarked graves, figuring out how many children there Why did these abuses happen? Accountability. Mm -hmm. That's the next step for the United States that so many natives in Indian country want to see is accountability. But the first step of accountability is acknowledging the truth, laying it out there. And Dana, I would imagine that getting to the truth of the matter is important for the process of healing, right? And I'm wondering, in your conversations with these survivors, if they spoke about not just the impact these experiences had on their own lives, but how it impacted their families and their communities. Because this question of accountability seems not just relevant for these specific survivors, but entire generations and and their descendants. Over time, what happens is these schools are teaching Native children to assimilate into white culture, to abandon their language, their culture, their traditions, all due to policies set up by the U.S. government. And the impact of that creates Native Americans who were taught to be ashamed of their culture, their language, creates a sense of shame, fear, anger, simple anger and nervousness, literally scared to even stand up and say that they are Native American. That can manifest that policy into domestic abuse, alcoholism, suicide, drug abuse, and unfortunately, Native Americans do have some of the highest rates compared with other populations in diabetes and many of these societal ills. When you have people who have gone through such a traumatic experience as children, children is the time where you're like a sponge. You soak up, you you learn your behavior from what's around you. And when you're someone like Donald Nakoni, who now at 86 spent 12 years of his formative life from the age of eight, never having someone hug you in an appropriate way or saying, good job, or I love you, it impacts how you parent because he never learned those skills. His lovely wife, Juanita, they've been married 56 years, and he would say, I've never told some of this stuff to Juanita, my wife. I've never talked to anybody about it. You're the only one I've talked to her about it. But I've never talked to anybody about it. Like, I've talked to you about it, and I went to. I never, no one ever counseled us on what we went through or might have gone through. You've asked questions about something that embedded, and it's rarely come out and something I've had to live with all my life. When you're raised in that kind of environment, you don't know how to cope or how to parent. Well, and Donald 
you know, you get older, he was reflected on his life, and he says, I regret at times how I treated my kids. I was very strict with them. They got spanked, as he says, they got whoopings for small transgressions. But sadly, that was how he had been raised because so much of his formative time, 12 years, was in an environment. When I talked to Donald now, I talked to him this morning, and at the end of the conversation, we were joking, and I said, I love you. And he told me back, I love you too. It is so important for Native people to express um, love, not just to, to show it work. To, to give a hug, but to also say it, to affirm it, to acknowledge. Yeah, it's like this act of almost resistance and defiance and resiliency to express that after having endured what was endured for so long. Absolutely. And when I first, when I met Donald face to face, I told him when I left, I said, I, I'm going to tell you that I love you and I'm going to hug you. And he laughed. He said, I've heard that so little in my life. I don't know how to respond. And he always says, I love you. He is so proud of himself that he is at 86 still learning to say those words. Well, Dana, thank you so much for bringing your reporting for us and and for the people you spoke to sharing their stories with you. Thank you for listening and for having us. Dana Hedgepath covers local breaking news and American Indian stories for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick and edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks also to David Fallis, Sarah Childress, and Renita Jablonski. If you love our show and the kind of deep, empathetic reporting we do, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.